Howard Levy was murdered on November 4th, 1996, and this is his brother and sister's story. Hi, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for uh, carving out some time. Oh, I was just going to say the same thing to you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Hi, Robin, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hello. How are you? Good. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim, So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Chicago, Illinois is a Midwestern state in the United States and is famed for its architecture. Chicago is the most populous city in the state of Illinois and the third most populous city in the whole United States. It is located on the shores of Freshwater Lake, Michigan. With domestic and international visitors, it was the second most visited city in the nation. Some of the famous things to see there include Lincoln Park Zoo, the Chicago Riverwalk, and the Navy Pier. Sports are a big part of Chicago. They even have two Major League Baseball teams. The Chicago Cubs are one of the oldest teams in baseball and they play at Wrigley Field. Dan Levy sits in his office in Scottsdale, Arizona, looking at the picture on his desk of his big brother, Howard, thinking about how his own whole life's work has been inspired by him. Howard was born in Chicago. He was the oldest of three children. He showed his younger sister, Robin, and baby brother, Dan, such immense love and kindness. He's very unpretentious, gentle, uh, had a very calm demeanor even as a kid. So he was, we loved sports and our family was close-knit and our family continued to be until unfortunately it's tragic uh, murder. What, what kind of things did Howard like to do? Uh, he, I remember when he was young, he was into sports. We would, he would play, and of course, as a younger brother, I would follow along and envy and play wiffle ball on the streets or football, you know, at the local school. So he loved sports. Uh, he was, even as a young boy, if you will, he worked hard. He had a paper route. Talking about Howard, he was very, very special in our family, being the oldest but also the kind of person he was as a little boy, as a young adult, and as a a grown adult. I had never met anybody like him, nor do I think I ever will. He had a way about him that was so gentle, filled with such goodness in his heart. For a man, he was a word called a mensch, which a lot of people don't know what that means but it means a righteous person, a person of goodness, and his character as a human being was beyond measure. 
And I think that because of the kind of person he was, it compounded our pain because of the goodness in him and in his soul and the uh, pain of hatred and terrible crime that was put upon him, that it made it worse for all of us. Howard, from the time he was a little boy, he had a smile always on his face. He was nicknamed in kindergarten, Smiley, from his kindergarten teacher. Oh my, that is so lovely. Well, he was a gentle boy, very loving to his family, his mother and his father. He never once, I had never ever heard him raise his voice ever to, to anybody. So I think that that's unusual. Even in a family, there's usually something going on, some kind of words, raising their voice to their parents, even in teenage years, nothing. He talked to his parents every day, and we were a very close-knit family. He was beyond words, just the most gentle man I ever met. He was very loving to me. He looked out for me. He was my big brother. He showered me with love and kindness, and he listened to every word that I ever said, believe it or not. (laughs) That's very Um, unusual for a big brother. My goodness, that's very unusual. He sounds like just like the most caring and warm and compassionate and loving person. Well, I mean, a lot of people can't say that in true heart. They all, you know, if they lose somebody, they may not fill you in on all the things that maybe they didn't care for or or maybe had an argument and slammed the phone down or whatever. But Howard was never like that. Growing up in Chicago and loving sports as he did, he became an avid Chicago Cubs fan. Even after his family moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, he stayed loyal to the Cubs. He was known to be an absolutely sweet and happy child, always treating his family with the utmost respect. They were an extremely tight-knit, loving and close family that spent lots of time together. Howard was the kind of man that went and had lunch with his mum while she was working. On her lunch break, he would bring his daughter and they would enjoy very special moments together. As a family, they would watch the Andy Griffith Show and enjoy movies. Howard really liked music, and he would wear his earphones listening to his favorites. Dan envied and looked up to Howard. We always had a chemistry set that was in the model rocket. But as a younger brother, as younger siblings do, and I'm sure Rob and my sister will expand, uh, it's one of those you just idolize uh, pretty much everything he does. I mean, we had our moments like brothers do, um, but we also had our talks. And, uh, you know, he taught me a lot as we grew up. And what would be sort of the one most important thing that he taught you that you still try to do or live by today? I would say... The one thing that if I had to pull something uh, right out of the air, it would be to never give up and to continue no matter what uh, to your goal and try to reach your goal. I draw strength from, you know, even though he's not here. 
and I think I'm inspired to do things and to make changes and fight for crime victims and honor him, but I'm inspired by who he was. A story that the family still speaks about is when Howard was a youngster and was working hard delivering the newspaper. He had dedication and determination. The newspaper decided to have a contest, a contest that every single person delivering the paper wanted to win. A trip to Disneyland. I can picture all of the youths trying their hardest to win, to get the most new subscriptions. It is a testament to Howard's character, even at that age. His eagerness and tenacity shone. Do you have any stories you can tell me about when you, when you two were children, something that you guys like to do or something? I'll tell you a funny story. Well, it's, it's something that we laugh about with Dan and I and uh, uh, three of us. Howard had a paper route years ago, back in the early 60s. They still delivered the paper. Well, they delivered the paper, but they had paper boys that would come and collect the money from you at your door. And they had a contest where they wanted to see who could um, collect, get the most subscriptions. And we lived in Illinois at the time, in Chicago, suburbs, and um, Howard, Howard won. He got the most subscriptions, and he won a big trip to Disneyland. Well, back in the early 60s, that was a huge deal for a, for a boy to go from Illinois to, to California on his own with a group of other children that were doing this. And he came home with, he always came, he would think of others always as far as gifts are concerned. He came home with two gifts. <laughs> One was, uh, at that time, to me, it looked huge, a big Mickey Mouse stuffed Mickey Mouse and a small little rubbery, like little Dumbo. And when I when he came home and opened up the suitcase and he brought them both out, naturally I grabbed towards the big Mickey Mouse that was so, so soft and so, I just loved it. And I held it for a second or two and then Howard says, no, that's for Dan, that's Dan's. <laughs> so I, my face dropped and I was like, oh, Okay, I handed over <laughs> Mickey, and I got a little, small, very small, rubbery Dumbo, and I never <laughs> forgot that. But I have to say, what's interesting, and he probably didn't bring it up, but Dan, still to this day, and you're talking a, a many, many years ago already, that he still has that Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Howard was such a wonderful brother. He was always there for his siblings. He would protect them from neighborhood bullies when needed and teach them how to always stand tall and proud of who you are. When he went to camp, he would always write home and at 10 years old even, he would say, I bought a gift for Robin or Dan or tell grandma I love her in his letters from his fun camp as just a boy. When Robin went to camp, she would ask for more money for treats. Robin always felt deep love from her brother. Howard always, he took me, he was like, I was always had this feeling that he was, it was almost like an umbrella that was over my head. Mm. Because he always felt 
said. He um, was looking, taking care of me, protecting me, wanting the best for me. I miss that. Howard met his wife through the synagogue. Howard was a hands-on father to his beloved son and daughter. Before it was even expected for men to be involved in their children's lives, he was. He was one of the trendsetters, helping carve the way for men to be proud of being a hands-on father. Howard enjoyed these times, and you would see him hanging out with his children most of the time. They went to the library every week, to movies, and he even helped out at the preschool. Now that is a man that was made to be a dad. He was a remarkable man. A great, you know, father and husband, brother, and, you know, I, I think our memories of him are really, really good. Um, and like I said, I mean, nobody's perfect, but, uh, and we had our shares of brotherly love fights, but he was always, you know, I can remember I'm with the shortest kid in my class and for years got picked on, but Howard was always there to protect me or say, leave him alone or, you know, the neighborhood bully. And, uh, so typical, maybe not so typical stories of, um, you know, him just teaching me how to stand up and be proud, but, uh, and be proud of our uh, religion as well. We're, we're Jewish. And so, you know, him getting his bar mitzvah and then it just, I think, inspired me. But as an adult, he, uh, you know, carried on a lot of the same mannerisms and was successful and educated and he had a master's degree and worked in the insurance business and raised a family, had two young children. And uh, we would still get together almost every Sunday. He was inseparable to his little girl, Rachel. He had an older son also, but he... And Rachel had a bond I have never, ever seen. He did everything with that little girl. She was nine and a half at the time. Oh my he was goodness. the kind of father. Yeah. That, that is so horrible. Tell me about something that he did with his daughter, something that they enjoyed to do together. Oh, yes. He, every single week, and this to me is very unusual, but every single week, Rachel had ballet class. He was the one who took her with his ballet bag on his shoulder. Oh he would sit every week on the floor watching the ballet class with Rachel. Tell me something that Howard liked to do with his son. With his son, he did a lot of things with his son in terms of watching movies, a lot of Star Trek things that they did together. They would build things together. They had a train set just Legos. My my nephew was into Legos a lot. But I, I think when you knew Howard and how he cared so much for other people, not only his family, when he talked to you, he really listened to every word that you said. So as a little boy, he was just so bonded with my brother and so close because children are very perceptive and they understand they know the difference between somebody that is going through the motions, maybe, yes. but to really, really love and, and cherish and try to be a good role model for his children, you, it, it just was obvious. 
that he enjoyed every single moment. The Levy family got together almost every Sunday, even when the kids were older and had moved out. They would watch the Cubs games or have a barbecue or a family meal. Everyone hopes for this loving family unit that gets together even after the kids have moved out of the home and have started a life with their own spouses and children. And this was the Levy's. They would enjoy each other's company and spend time as a family connecting, laughing and kidding around, genuinely liking each other until the tragic day when a man waits innocently in his car in the parking lot of an elementary school, reading the sports section on a Sunday morning, waiting to play basketball with his friends. A day no one would have ever expected evil was lurking. A day when Howard Levy, honorable man, great father, loving son, inspiring brother, loyal friend was gunned down in a random act of violence. This is the story of Howard Levy's murder. Tell me about the unfortunate day that you found out that your brother had indeed been murdered. Yeah, I had just moved into my wife and I, uh, our first home, new home, and we had like a my son, Sammy, was one, and getting ready to go out on a Sunday morning, and I got a phone call. My brother would play, Howard would play basketball on Sunday morning. I would play on Saturdays with my friends, and Howard would play with his buddies on Sunday at a local elementary school. And anyways, my sister-in-law called and said, frantically, you got to get to the hospital immediately. Howard's been shot. From there, we jumped in the car and frantically drove to the hospital and um, I think we left my son with our neighbor and uh, it was a day that obviously I'll never forget and one that uh, you know helped were some of the early ambers of me becoming an advocate happened on that day and we got to the hospital and as doctors do they put us in a small room and they said you know he's been shot um, we're running tests, um, and over the course of, I think, probably 12, 13 hours, you know, they had said he was shot in the vertebrae with T12, and that he would be paralyzed and would never walk. Um, and so over the course of these hours, we began, although devastated to say at least, you know, he'll play wheelchair basketball, I'll see his daughter, you know, all the things. Uh, and so we started to find some joy, but then like in the middle of the night, we saw them scurrying around and they took him frantically to get an MRI. And then several hours later, they came back and said, he has gone. When you got this phone call, you, you must have just been reeling, like wondering what? Sh- yeah, shot? I mean, I, mean, I had mean... talked to him, talked to him the night before, and it was a Sunday we were getting together that night for our Sunday dinners. And... You know, he lived in a nicer area, but it wasn't a bad area. It was just, uh, you know, I guess, and I've learned over the last 25 years, crime you know, happens everywhere, but uh, it was there was a pocket of an area there that I guess, you know, elementary school. When did you, or how did you find out about 
Howard's murder? Well, it was a Sunday morning, and um, I had picked up the phone, and it was my brother's friend, Randy, and Randy said to me that he was waiting He was going to play basketball, which he had played basketball over 20 years with the same group of guys on a Sunday morning, just a way to get out and bond with other guys. And um, Howard did not get the call from the week before that they changed the time. Instead of 7, they were going to meet at 7.30 because of daylight savings time. He went out that day, got there early because they weren't going to come till 7.30, but he didn't know it. No, If somebody would have just called to tell him the time had changed, a lot of things in life happen because you're just there, the circumstances, and they would have, he would have come a little bit later. But he came at 7, nobody was there, so he sat in his car reading his newspaper on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m., waiting to play, and two um, Hispanic gang members came up to him, um, shot through the glass, and um, he, they pulled him out of the car. And um, they drove his car for three blocks for a joy ride. They were just coming off of drugs, and um, they were looking to make some money off of his stereo or whatever else they were gonna take from his car. And um, because of the shots being fired, somebody in the neighborhood called the police and they came to talk to Howard. Howard was conscious at the scene. This is another thing that was traumatic for all of us, but Howard was conscious at the scene. He gave a description of somebody wearing a football shirt and the team that it was, and he kept saying, they took him to the hospital, and at the nurses, he kept saying, I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs. Well, the bullet went into the the vertebrae of the spine, And they had to take a X-ray of his spine, so they put him under to take that X-ray. Why I don't know, because it could move his body anyway. But that was the procedure at the hospital. And um, we were told. I mean, so I had to call my parents and tell them, "Well, Howard's been shot. To please get down to Barrows, which is the hospital that he was at." And when we all arrived. The doctor said to us, "He's good. He missed missed his vital organs by just a touch, just a narrow amount. He might be paralyzed from the waist down, but he will survive." And that we all thank said, "Thank God, he'll be okay," and that he would still be with us. And then he said, "You need to go in and say your goodbyes." They didn't know what had gone wrong. And so I went in, and lucky me, I had nothing to apologize for. I had nothing to say about how much I love you, and how much you're the best brother in all the world. And I loved you so much. And he was gone by midnight. When you heard that he had actually been shot, I mean, this is something that must have been out of even your scope of imagination that could ever happen to somebody in your family. Never in the wildest did we ever think, wildest dreams did I ever think of anything like this. Because not he didn't look for trouble. No, he wasn't in a, a party that had trouble. He wasn't with a gang or people, friends that were 
um, not so good. We trusted everybody, my gen- a lot of people in my generation. We didn't know from this. And then we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, where at that time, what do we know? We know a beautiful, like people flock here even to this day from all over the world. And um, we just, even in the early 70s when we came here, I don't think we locked our doors even then. So we didn't know from this. I had never known anyone who had been killed by violence. And um, yeah, it was it was shocking. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool. So please help us to reach as many listeners as possible and tell a friend. And let them know that we can be found on their favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Morning the Murdered. I want to send a big thank you out there to all of our supporters. I would like to thank our newest supporter. So Jane, thank you. You can donate to the Morning the Murdered podcast through Patreon or PayPal at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your generosity. And now back to the show. This is where Dan's inspiration begins for his lifelong work of helping others. The doctors wrote the family a prescription and told them to go home and that this would help them sleep. There was no crisis worker called, no clergy, no support at all. How are you supposed to hear this news and just be sent on your way? How terrible for them. And then the treatment from one of the nurses? So horrible. She should be ashamed of herself, and I hope she switched careers. All of this caused Dan to say, Howard, we will do better for other victims' families. We had an intensive care nurse come into that room after the doctor left, and as we sat there sobbing, uh, opened the door and very significantly said, you people need to keep it down. We have others trying to rest, slammed the door. And oh, I no. thought, you know, how, that's what I call my brother, how, uh, you know, we can do better and we're gonna. Dan is all about making sure victims and the surviving families are not forgotten. He fights for those that can't fight for themselves. He found great strength and comfort being with others who are living with the after effects of a murdered loved one. He found a passion in hearing what others were going through and decided to help fight for change. When he realized that although your constitutional right states that you can be at all court hearings, he learned the hard way that companies weren't actually allowing staff to be absent for more than the allotted days the company gave them even though it was your right and you wanted and needed to be at your brother's murder trial, companies can be so heartless, but they were no match for Dan's doggedness. And with his hard work, he was able to have the law changed 
that people can no longer be fired for exercising their constitutional rights. As well, victims' families had to pay for the police report. No one else had to pay for it. The criminals could even get it free, for goodness sake. I mean, talk about appalling. Well, Dan had that changed also. He deserves kudos for all of his hard work. He refers to himself as one person in an army of many and says he is just one guy trying to make a difference. I say he is being humble. His sister Robin expressed her immense pride in her brother Dan. She said it often that where many people just don't have the fight in them, Dan has spent his entire life since Howard's murder, starting with helping his own family, being their advocate, their rock, dealing with the legal system, the police and court proceedings, and then continuing on to fight for others. Robin is just in awe of her brother's strength. And I am sure that Howard is looking down with pride on Dan as well. You know what it's like to be thrust into the criminal justice system and I've worked with thousands, tens of thousands of survivors, not only when I was the executive director of Parents Murder Children, but as the national president and on the board, uh, it gave me the opportunity in, in my professional career as well, working with victims to really understand, um, you know, not only the lens that I view it from as a victim, but to to really understand the plight of others as well. And so Howard's with me in all those moments, the legal representative or advocate on behalf of my family to first bring justice for my brother and find these guys. And then second to, you know, honor him. And after we had gone through the whole system, uh, I decided to dedicate my life to making changes and helping the victims. These two horrible people that decided to murder Howard? They had tried to rob someone else earlier, but that person got away. Then they flipped a coin to see who was going to kill Howard? I mean, can you process that madness? Because I sure can't. The senselessness and horror of it all is devastating. Shooting and killing an innocent man pulling him out of his car and leaving him there to suffer, just to steal his car, only to drive it three blocks and dump it there? Howard's daughter often went to watch her father play basketball, but she had a cold that day and Howard said she should stay home. The family is so thankful she did, but it makes you wonder why things happen the way they do, doesn't it? My goodness. Right after all of this tragedy, Dan jumped in right away. And now, what have you done to help others? Yeah, well, one of the things I, I, I really keep in my mind is with the co-defendant, um, he pled to manslaughter, but they videotaped his, uh, it's called a preliminary hearing that went on for like three days. And he talked about how they were in an apartment and saw, you know, and there's transcripts. I have it somewhere where he said he saw the, the guy we popped brother on TV, you know, raising money and on TV. And, and ultimately, uh, someone came forward with 
crucial information. Uh, and so I kind of feel like I help in some small way to bring some justice to my brother, which I promised him as I looked at him. Well, that's fantastic. Okay. That's really Hooked good. Up to a machine. And I have a picture that was in the newspaper that I have framed, and it shows me brother eight police and looking for. And so that's something that I, although it's not an award or anything like that, it's something I, I feel like I did all I can to try and help. They caught the guys. And as it was gang-related, it was hard to get people to speak up about it due to the intimidation and fear of gang retribution. The first couple hearings, my mom was going and some of these gang members uh, were coming to court to support their buddy and they were staring at us. And one said to my mom, what you looking at, lady? I'll never forget that. And there was an advocate there from the police department and she saw that and she went back and told Sergeant Carl Richardson in homicide, who was the homicide sergeant in Phoenix police. And Carl at the next hearing showed up with three or four of his detectives with their badges and guns and waited for us out in the hallway and said, she introduced us. I didn't know him. It wasn't his case. And he said, I heard what happened last time. And I want you to know, we're here for you. And let us walk in first and behind you and let us do the staring. And oh. sure enough, the guys were there and they came in. The cops sat by us and we never saw those guys at another hearing. Oh. Uh, those gang buddies. And I just, it brings me to tears because I often told Carl, he's retired now, but he didn't have to do that. And he did. And he said, you know, when Maureen came back and told us, I just felt compelled. Those are the wonderful moments with the police because we don't always have them. But those are the no. ones that are just so heartwarming. And you must have been so touched by that. That That's really nice, really nice to hear. Yeah, it was. And so when I do trainings with in the folks mainly in the criminal justice field, whether judges, prosecutors, law, whoever, victim groups, it's about you can be that one person and, and and Kelly, you are being that one person by giving victims a voice, and you never know. And in my 22-year career, I've got a file with some letters, not too many, but some that was from people that said, you know, this little thing that I never thought was much uh, made a difference for them, and so I don't do it for that, and I know you don't, but it does, just so you know. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you have given survivors a platform or an opportunity to have a voice. The shooter was charged with first-degree murder, and the non-shooter, who was only 17 at the time, testified against him and made a plea deal. He got 15 years for manslaughter and was then deported back to his home country of Mexico. The shooter then pled guilty to first-degree, so he got life instead of the death penalty. After the many victim impact statements by Howard's family and friends, the shooter had a chance to speak, but he said nothing. The judge, however, had plenty to say. He said the shooter was a coward and a menace, and it was a crime against the community. There were many heroes in this story. This judge, the police who helped in the courtroom, the police who caught the guy, Dan. But some of the people involved were rude, and not good to work with, like this horrible nurse and some of the police. 
the detective when I said I didn't have another case to move on to when he told me if these guys go to Mexico they're gone he said without missing a beat and this was the case agent Dan I'm tired of you calling me two or three times a day and I had to see your brother got thrown out on an autopsy table so don't tell me how you don't have another case to move on to I'm done with you and he hung up and I remember going into my wife in tears and thank God for my wife I'd be in a gutter somewhere I was telling her that um, because she didn't it's just always been a rock for me. But in any case, you know, I was like just so taken aback. Everybody struggles and has very bad days. Even someone with such fight in him. And I remember what it was like to cry myself to sleep and to wonder if anybody cared, you know, to be scared oh. and intimidated and alone, very isolated, even though I had tons of friends and people there. Um, you still wonder, you know, if you're going to ever be able to move forward. And, and you do, and it, it takes a, a lot. But uh, I know for me, it, it really motivated me to say, geez, I was already getting my degree in criminal justice to be a juvenile probation officer before Howard was murdered. And I always thought if I could touch one kid out of, you know, a million, uh, and I had been a big brother and a mentor to troubled youth. And, and then after this happened, and we went through the system, I just felt, I guess, more of a kinship with crime victims. Asking Robin about how she keeps Howard's memories alive, she had such great advice. Really, I have nothing but so much remembrance of so much joy and love. And he was truly, when we lost him, we really lost just a lot more than just a lot of people. I, I, I don't know how to explain it other than to say that a part of our heart went with him that day. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that he's, when I think of him, I... I think of him all the time. I We celebrate his birthday every year, Dan and I. And what do you do we for that? For, tell, tell me about the celebration yes. that you have for his well, birthday. One of the things that we did, um, when, I, when this happened to me, I went to therapy for an entire year, and the therapist told me, you are the type of person that will have to keep him close to your heart, and that um, you could do a scrapbook to try to remember things, to keep him close. You can go out to meals on his birthday. So we started doing that. My At the time, my parents were doing it with us. And we would sit around the table on his birthday, or at least close to the day of his birthday, August 20th. And we would, um, a lot of times we lit a candle, and we would go around the room, and we would tell one, st one memory, each of us. And what that does to you is it keeps you very close to him yes. in the sense of, I still write it on my calendar, Howard's birthday. And I actually, for many years, and I still do this, but to, and even though I don't believe he's necessarily at the cemetery buried, but I go there and I usually bring him a gift. I have a sign in my office that I live my life by and I, I love it. I, it's okay, I'll just read it to you. It's a quote. Please do, yes. It's from uh, Whitney Young Jr. And he was a civil rights activist and said, I'm not anxious to be the loudest voice or the most popular, but I would like to think that at a crucial moment, I was an effective voice of the voiceless and an effective hope of the hopeless. 
I guess the closing, I would just say, you know, it, it touches everybody. And I think you'll find, and I'll warn you, just, you know, Robin, love her to death. She's very emotional and you'll see, you know, it's like the love and caring that she has as well for Howard and me, but, you know, in this context, Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, but I have the ripple effect of, I remember my son when he was about four who never met his uncle saying, Dad, why did a bad guy have to take kill Uncle Howard? You know, it's just, I can see that the innocence of a child or, I mean, it's affected who I am. And to see my wife who, when she said I do, didn't say I do to homicide or, you know, the person I became or the advocate and the travel and the time away. And I know I'm digressing, but uh, I guess I just want people to know it's so important to have support and people that are there, not only in the days, weeks and months, but in the years and decades later. And I thank God I have my wife and my close circle of friends that I've known. And we're all in this thing called life together. Dan sounds like he is taking after his brother Howard in being a good and decent human being. Howard was killed in a random act of violence, a horrible crime. The world is a sadder place without him. Lucky for us though, Dan works hard every day, trying to fill his big brother's shoes. And I, for one, think he is doing a stupendous job. He has been helping others selflessly for so many years and wants to share some support groups that you may be interested in. Arizona Crime Victims Law Group, Parents of Murdered Children, National Organization for Victim Assistance, National Center for Victims of Crime, and Compassionate Friends. You will find those web links in our show notes. As well, don't forget to contact your Attorney General's office or Governor's office when you feel you need some guidance and support. And Dan's message was clear on this one. Don't forget to self-care. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Kelly. Okay. You take care now. Okay. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And for Robin's farewell, she will read something beautiful. Thank you, Robin. Howard's eyes. The character of a man is through his eyes. They speak to you with such intensity. They speak of love, concern, warmth gentleness and honesty they cling to you listening to every last word with great compassion Howard we will cherish you forever and keep you so very very close to our hearts love Robin and Dan in memory of Howard Allen Levy born on 8-20-56 and he died 11-4-96 I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one. And let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, 
but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Mourning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs>